More than 20% of people in faith communities are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. But sadly, churches are often the last place a victim of abuse can find help and healing. I'm Kelly Downing, and my dream is a church where survivors like me and so many others can feel safe, be heard, and find healing. Until that happens, this is Survivor Sanctuary, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse who are navigating the road to healing and for anyone who wants to be a part of the major heart renovation the church needs so that our faith communities can truly become sanctuaries for survivors. Welcome to Survivor Sanctuary, another episode, another Wednesday. It is episode 21, and actually we are an episode behind, which you may have noticed last week. My goodness, I had such an amazing podcast for us last week and did a great interview with one of the members of our Survivor Sanctuary Facebook page, and then uh, every single thing that could possibly go wrong with my equipment and with my internet and with everything it went wrong. And so we had to postpone airing this episode until this week. And Nicole was a trooper. I got to say thank you so much to Nicole Saylor. She is in the Survivor Sanctuary group. She deserves a medal of some kind for putting up with the technical difficulties last week. I'm just going to be real. It would be nice to sit here and pretend that everything is always perfectly polished and beautiful and wonderful and that all of my decades in the radio industry have prepared me to always be perfect. Well, no. (laughs) Last week, it was just a hot mess. Like sat out until it became room temperature and then reheated 10 times. It was bad. So thank you to Nicole. You deserve a medal for putting up with all of the issues last week. And hey, we had a great interview, whether I was able to air it for you last week or not. And I'm excited to get into it. Well, we are going to dive right into our interview with Nicole Saylor. And I just want Nicole to tell us her story from the beginning, how she became involved with advocating for the abused. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, you know, we loved our church. Um, It's the church where my husband grew up. We had our first date at a youth group event there back when we were 17. Um, We got married in our church. Um, It's a small church, a little less than 100 people the whole time we were there. Changed affiliations once while we were there and um, became a Southern Baptist church maybe eight or nine years ago. Yeah. I mean, when you're in a congregation for that long, you know, become your family. They were with us through miscarriages, um, through, we did, we've done three adoptions. They helped me through some postpartum issues I had, you know, we were in each other's homes a lot and they were just our people. Over the years, we did start to notice some changes. The sermon seemed to take on a harsher tone. Certain doctrines seemed to be elevated as more important, more emphasis on things. And even occasionally like politics were mentioned and that wasn't something that had been part of our DNA before that. So that was kind of right before the official whistleblowing happened, that was kind of in the background of what was going on. And so I do have to back up about 10 years ago, somebody was in our small group, like our Bible study group and mentioned something about our pastor having something in his history. So I actually did just a $10 state police background check on him and discovered that he did indeed have a criminal record of um, indecent assault and corruption of minors. And I didn't really even understand what all of that was. Like you said, I don't have any history of abuse in my own personal life, no experience with the court system. And I just didn't even know what those words really meant. So we did what every good Christian does, and we went to our church leadership and asked questions about it. And so my husband was the one that actually went and asked the questions. And, you know, he got a story back that we believed that it was some sort of false accusation and that um, our pastor actually kind of took the fall so that the victim wouldn't need to take the stand and no big deal. And so we just kind of just stuffed that deep down far away (laughs) Um, assuming that everything was fine. Look, all the other leaders must know about it and they all think it's fine. So it must just be fine. So then fast forward to 2018, my friend and I were talking about something and she said, so what's the deal with this rumor about 
pastor so-and-so. And I said, well, it's not actually a rumor. I mean, there, he has that criminal record. And um, I mean, I just assumed that it was like one of those things that everybody knew. It turns out that is not true at all. So she looked up the record and did a little bit more Google searching than I had ever done. And when we started to really dig into the details of it, I was just really horrified and shocked that I had basically been complicit uh, for a really long time. Uh, We discovered that he had actually lost his teaching license and that the state had determined that he was a danger to the health and welfare of children. So he was not allowed to teach anymore. Um, Discovered that he had actually pled guilty. I had been told before that he had pled no contest. I don't even know if that's a real plea or not. So when I discovered these new details, um, I still at that point assumed that he was not guilty, but had still like taken the fall. So I set up a meeting with him and the other leaders. We had at that time, I think we had four elders and the president of the deacon board. I set up a meeting with them and, you know, I kind of basically just said, I don't understand how you can meet the qualifications for being an elder Uh, I don't know how you can be above reproach because I know you didn't actually do this. You know, clearly you didn't actually molest somebody, but you pled guilty, which means you lied on the stand. And he said, oh, I never said I wasn't guilty. I absolutely did it. And that, that was just really shocking for me to hear. So at that point, I realized like, wow, we have a really big problem on our hands. And I was trying to work with the church leadership to, to see that this is a problem and that we need to somehow find a way to deal with this and that none of us are really equipped to deal with this. But uh, I had discovered the um, grace, the godly response to abuse in the Christian environment. And I also suggested that they uh, talk with a woman in our congregation who is a counselor that deals with some of these issues just to get an idea of how to respond and how to deal with this in a way that wasn't going to hurt anybody who was a survivor. And I didn't mention this before, but this man also served as the superintendent of our community preschool that our church uh, ran. So that was kind of what was happening in the beginning of 2018. Um, Very quickly, I discovered that our leadership was not going to handle things the way that I thought it should be handled. (laughs) And um, that I was very quickly kind of pushed to the side and dismissed. Um, I was told that they would keep my husband informed um, and that I would know things when I, whenever the rest of the congregation would know it. And, you know, the, the pastor in question shortly after our meeting um, went ahead with his month-long missions trip to the Philippines, and nothing was said. I, I mean, it was just complete silence from the leadership. And I think with every passing day, I was feeling like more and more complicit. I felt the need that the congregation absolutely had to be informed and that the parents at the preschool needed to be informed. And yet I seemed to be in this minority. Like I felt like it was this really urgent issue and that I had some complicity in it for my silence for so long. And yet I felt it was the leadership's job to actually do the informing. So I stayed quiet. He returned from the Philippines a month later and announced his retirement, but didn't mention any of this other stuff that was happening. And, um, yeah, in the meantime, I had reached out to Grace and Boz Chavigian had written me an email back. And it was like the first sign that maybe I wasn't crazy that that this really did need to be told to the congregation. And uh yeah, he he made it clear in his email to me that absolutely the leadership needs to inform the congregation um and they need to do it well and if they don't do it then you need to do it. Was what he told me in my email. So that was eye-opening for myself and my husband that, okay, no, this actually does really need to be brought into the light. Wow. I just want to say here real quick that, you know, there's some hesitation uh, in your story. You've said you, you weren't sure that it should be told to the congregation. There's some things that you were questioning if you were maybe even making too big a deal out of this. And I love the fact that you heard from Boss Division of Grace Um, If you had heard from anyone with this information, it would have been great. But it is so empowering to know just to hear from an outside source that you're not crazy 
and that you're right in what you're doing. And I think that that's something that victims of sexual abuse struggle with a lot. And it's interesting for me to hear from your perspective as a person who hasn't experienced abuse themselves, those same questions uh, were going on in your mind as well. Like, is it right to do this? And I know that in my own life, in my story, and I've heard the stories of some other people who've shared the same thing, that it is just that validation. Like you hear from somebody who knows that you're doing the right thing. And that's such a powerful feeling. We just need that. And in my own story, it was Jimmy Hinton who uh, just kind of validated. He read the story. He read the emails that I had been sharing. And he was like, uh, yeah, no, you're not crazy. You're on the right track. You're doing the right thing. And this needs to be brought out into the light. It's just something that's not clear to us, I feel like, when we're the ones blowing the whistle. And it's just very helpful to have people who are willing to come alongside us and say, no, you're doing the right thing. And then it becomes so much more clear. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It seems crystal clear to me now that I, you know, should have spoken much more boldly, much sooner. And yet in the moment, it was not so clear. I will say at the same time, what was happening from the leadership was we were starting to get sermons on unity and gossip and divisiveness. And so that was happening, which felt really wrong to me. And yet I still was kind of in the middle of it and couldn't quite see clearly what I was supposed to do personally about the whole issue. So eventually, my husband was in was on the deacon board, and he was able to put some pressure and to help them see that this does need to be talked about uh, in some fashion. So the pastor did eventually give a a version of a confession in front of the church, and kind of just never came back. And at that point in time, so the congregation at least had some basic facts about what was going on, and. There eventually was a, ske- a meeting scheduled, like a, they called it a family meeting, where we all sat down. Um, we had pre-submitted questions to the leaders to get answered. And that meeting ended up just causing more confusion because the answers that we were getting, like a lot of the questions weren't answered and the ones that were answered were answered in such a way that it was really obvious that not the whole truth was being told. So several people after that meeting reached out to a former pastor one of the pastors who like brought the one in question um, into the church and asked him what was going on and what had happened over the years. And he responded by writing a letter and he sent that to the deacon board. So my husband received that letter and within a few days of receiving that letter, realized that it needed to be reported to our state child abuse authorities here in Pennsylvania, we call that child line. My husband and I are adoptive parents and have um, been in the foster care and adoption world for a long time. So I think we just had a better handle on mandated reporting than some of the other people on the deacon board. So that just kind of set off this crazy week for us. My husband made this mandated report. When he was in the process of making that mandated report, he shared the letter with me. One of our children had gone to the preschool that our church ran And a lot of the information in the letter referenced um, a lot of boundary crossing with the children in the preschool. And so I was concerned as a mother about my daughter. So I, during that week, then picked up the phone and called some of the teachers who had been at the preschool when my daughter was in the preschool. And they had not yet been informed about his criminal record. So I was the one informing them of the criminal record. And I just asked if they remembered anything that specifically um, had to do with my daughter, if they would please call Childline. Needless to say, this was not well (laughs) received by the leadership. And that Sunday is what we somewhat, in a silly way, refer to as Slander Sunday. (laughs) So after church that Sunday, (laughs) after church that Sunday, uh, the main elder at that point got up and gave a little statement to the church about three main things. One was that they had actually just had a consultation that week with Jimmy Hinton, and he gave this wonderful glowing report about why Jimmy Hinton basically said this wasn't a big deal. <laughs> and that that was not really how that consultation went. And then he also discussed how my husband made that mandated report. And then he talked about how I had started a firestorm by calling a lot of people. 
and just completely mischaracterized the whole situation for the congregation. He did not use our names, but it was very obvious to anybody who knew anything that was going on that it was us. And especially because after that statement, I actually stood up in church and said, if anybody wants to know why I have done what I have done, please come talk to me. So I kind of outed myself. So it was it was a very, very rough day for us. Um, thankfully, our children were not in the service when that happened. They were they had had the children leave. So they did not need to, to witness that. Um, I did, you know, then I started working all the steps with trying to work with the elder who made those statements, asking him to, to please tell the truth to correct the misstatements. And, you know, he did a small version of correcting the one thing, but not the other 10 things. And, and it really has never been corrected for anybody. But I can look on that now. And I'm actually super thankful that it got so crazy. Because leading up to that point in time, there was a lot of tension, even between my husband and I, I was, I was gone. I, I just felt like this place was too dangerous anymore. And we couldn't be there. And he was still working from within the leadership to try to to turn things in the right direction. And I had already resigned from doing music and from leading children's church just because I was just couldn't really be there um, in, anymore. I was there physically, but I wasn't really there anymore. And so I'm actually thankful it got that crazy because that's what it took for my husband to say, okay, yeah, at least for a while, like we can, I can't, sub, you know, subject my family to this anymore. So yeah, so that was a big turning point for us. My husband's report did uh, initiate an investigation. And so far, we don't know that we, there are no more victims have been discovered, thankfully. Yeah, and that was how I accidentally became a whistleblower. I mean, it really wasn't, you know, I wasn't like out marching with signs trying to bring somebody down or something. It was just this feeling that there's this right thing that needs to be done and feeling very alone because other people didn't see that that needed to be done. And that's really huge. You know, it's something that it's easy to put in like a concise interview to just sum it all up in a few sentences or in a few minutes. But that's really huge to lose your church family and to lose that support system. And I wonder if you would talk a little bit about that. Like, what was it like to lose the support of your church? I mean, to the point where you actually had to leave that church because of the way that you were treated uh, once you blew the whistle. Yeah, so um, we, I didn't mention this before, but in the midst of that summer, we actually were leaving to go to Colombia to adopt a 12-year-old. So this all happened right in the weeks leading up to our big trip and just, just a huge transition for our family. So we lost our, our support network pretty instantly. A few people did reach out to us and try to find out, you know, what, why are, what did you do and why did you do it? And we're really, really grateful for those people. But the overall uh, response to us was complete silence. And it was, it was really hard to have complete silence when we, and our family was in a really huge transition. And so that, that all just kind of happened and we were just reeling and didn't even realize what was happening. And we were pouring into our family in other ways and also trying to keep up with, you know, do we resign our membership? Are they having more meetings? What's going on back home? So we came home then in September from Colombia with our new son and entered a, just a really hard season as a family as we were trying to heal and to bond together and to be able to even communicate in a with a child who doesn't speak English. And it was just a really hard time. But we, out of kind of desperation, landed at a church that was pastored by one of our high school marching band friends. My husband and I are high school sweethearts. And so we, we just kind of said, hey, we need a place to land. We're in a really crazy thing and we don't even know what's going on, but we just like need a place to go on Sundays. And I'm just really thankful uh, God did not have us need to be shopping for churches during that time. He ended up helping us to land at a place that has just been really crucial to our healing as a family. They've been a fantastic congregation where abuse is mentioned from the pulpit multiple times frequently. Um, they have been just really, really healing for me personally. And I'm, I'm really thankful that God made that part of our story really easy. <laughs> 
I know not everybody has that experience of being able to find healing in the church after such church hurt, but, but we really have been. And I will say that that slander Sunday, we like joke about it, but I actually did end up with, um, I call it lowercase PTSD. <laughs> I don't know if there's really a, a difference like that, but I, you know, I, I wasn't struggling terribly, but I was having a lot of really intense nightmares, very like violent, angry nightmares, um, all surrounding church situation. I had some anxiety that just wouldn't quit. I just had a lot of anxiety during the day. And so eventually I did have to seek out some help to work through the, the PTSD brought on by the, just the whole, this whole situation. I think for survivors and clearly for people who advocate for survivors, there's this common feeling of sort of comparison. Like, I don't want to say that I'm traumatized because somebody else is traumatized so much more than I am. And I just want to say, like, you experience the part of abuse that seems to be the part that we actually struggle with the most. You'll hear a lot of survivors say the abuse itself was terrible, but it's how the church responded in the aftermath of the abuse that I still have all these gaping wounds from. So when we kind of compare and, you know, you're not supposed to compare trauma and I get that, but you definitely, what you experienced is awful. And I would say that, that, that was traumatic stress that you went through and uh, losing your church family. It, it's no small thing. Yes, that was, it was very painful. Um, I mean, yeah, you can't lose your community. You know what you, you've convinced yourself that you're there, your family for all of those years and just have it be kind of instantly poof gone and have it not be a huge impact. Um, right, right. Okay, so I want to jump backwards just a little bit because I want to make sure that everybody listening kind of gets a clear picture and I need a clear picture as well. What made you investigate this pastor? Like because the average person is probably not going to do that and something about what you heard made you think I need to look into this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like what it was that drove you to dig deeper for more information on this guy? Boy, when we first looked up his record like 10 years ago, I don't even know. I don't remember the whole situation very well. I just remember that. So because of our work in foster care and adoption, we were just getting our clearances was just like a yearly thing. And so I knew that if you just know somebody's birth date and their name, you can get a state police, at least in Pennsylvania, it was a very simple $10 state police background check. So I just knew I was able to at least verify whether this was simply a rumor or if there was actually some court records to back it up. So I have another quick clarifying question. Uh, this person that disclosed to you that this rumor, was the rumor that this pastor had been a child molester, that he had assaulted a child in his past? Was, was it that? Yeah, I think somebody had said that he had, that he was a child molester. And we're like, what? That's not who we know, you know? <laughs> um, but so, but again, like I said, when I, when I remember seeing you know, indecent assault and corruption of minors. And for some reason in my, whatever, 29 year old brain, I did it just like, Oh, okay, well, I guess if you know, if a teenager makes a false accusation, and you're a good guy, and you, you take the fall for it. That's how that happens. And he was not on the sex offender registry, which I still to this day, don't really understand why he was not. But that was another kind of justification in my mind, for why it was probably okay. And I will say that that's something that I struggled with as well. Uh, when I was younger, even as a survivor of sexual abuse myself, I did not believe the majority of accusations of sexual abuse because in my mind, these men of God were there to protect us and to shepherd us and could do no wrong. Like that was what I had in my mind. So even though I had experienced sexual abuse by someone in a church, I had also been conditioned that these men of God are not to be questioned. And that was something that I carried with me into adulthood. And so even though I had experienced this, 
I still struggled to believe stories when people would come out and say I was abused by this person who is supposedly a great Christian. And I really think it's the way that our churches are set up. We are conditioned to give blind faith and blind trust to our leaders and to believe them over other people. I just think it's the structure that we all participate in when we're immersed in a religious institution, whether it's a church or otherwise. Yeah, I still really can't fully explain why I didn't do more about it back then other than I think there's two things. I can say, yes, we were told a false story. But in some ways, that's no excuse because we also had the ability to learn the real story and we didn't. So, you know, I do I do believe that a lot of what in kind of motivates me to to keep going and to keep trying to make sure that this um, man stays out of the pulpit is because for so long I didn't. Like I feel very personally responsible that I put a lot of children at risk. You can call it, you know, just being young and naive, but I also think I'm sure there was a certain element of just protection for myself. It's a lot easier to not open that can of worms. So I just kind of made it all okay and stuffed it down inside and uh, for a really long time. And I, I, I still don't quite know how to be okay about that. So I kind of turned that turmoil into some action. So I've heard you use the word complicit a couple of times. And I just, I take it back to we're completely ignorant of how child abuse works, how child predators work, especially when it comes to child predators in the church. And there's so much working against us that is going to cause us to believe the lies. And so I feel like, you know, that gives us a little bit of an excuse. But I know that feeling of just feeling complicit. I know that when I found out one of the men who had been a youth leader in the last church that I was a member of had been arrested for sexually assaulting a teenager. I just started shaking. Like I was physically shaking because I knew, and I just kept saying it over and over again to the person who told me, I knew that this is what he was. I knew he was doing this and I didn't say anything. And so it's that feeling of being complicit. And when I go back in my mind, it's like, I don't know that I could have said anything. I don't know what I could have done, but it's just that feeling of, I could have done something. I could have stepped in. I could have saved other people from being hurt. And that does drive me a little bit. Um, It drives some of what I do. The knowledge that there have been times in my past where I could have done more and could possibly have prevented pain and prevented heartbreak. And I let the social norms, especially the norms within church, kind of rule the day and ignored some red flags and ignored my intuition because we've got that conditioned into us. Like you don't say certain things, you don't do certain things, you believe the best in people and you keep your mouth shut and you keep your head down. And that's tough for me. Um, But I think that in in your case, and I think in, in my case when I was younger, when you don't know anything about sexual abuse, you don't know anything about how predators work. You literally know nothing about people who hide in religious institutions so that they can abuse children. You know, hindsight, we look back and think, oh, I could have done X, Y, and Z different. I could have done this differently. I could have done that differently. But honestly, I I feel like we're just set up to fail in the way that we're brought up within the church and just that whole, like, just believe Everything you're told, if a spiritual leader says something, it's gospel, and that's it. I just think it's hard with no facts and no information, especially like you were in the beginning, to know what to do in a situation like the one you were in. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I do. And I think that has like kind of driven my uh, trying to figure out that answer of like, how did I l- how did I let this happen to myself? In other words, like, how did I, how was I so okay with this that I put my child in that preschool and what was going on inside of me that was okay with this for so many years? And why did I buy the lie so easily? And so I I will say that that's been a lot of what I have been trying to research. And um, the research of Wade Mullen has really helped me in all of this. Um, He's done a lot of research on Um, abusive systems, particularly in evangelical churches. And that has been really helpful to me to see that this is 
like normal. Like I was playing a part in a script for so many years. And even like the whistleblower is like part of the script, you know? Um, and the, uh, the silent congregants is part of the script. And all of that is, although it's somewhat horrifying, it's actually very comforting to me to know that this is somehow human nature. And it, it also helps me to not feel like, you know, the people who are silent or the people who are the defenders of the child molester, that they're not necessarily villains. I still don't fully understand. <laughs> I don't understand it all. But hearing that it's the same way everywhere, for some reason, brings me a certain level of comfort. Yeah, it's that sense of like, well, I mean, this might suck, but I'm not alone in that. And I don't know if you have experienced this at all, but you know, I've had to get to the point where I can be okay with other people not understanding why it is that I do what I do, why I stand for what I stand for, why I speak out about what I speak out for, you know, because there's a part of me that wanted to just be on the same page with every person, you know, be a people pleaser and make everybody happy and have nobody be angry with me or misunderstand me. And I think that when it comes to fighting sexual abuse, especially within the church, that I've just had to come to a, a place where I have to say, you know, some people are not going to understand this. And I love what you said about people being able to see that they're not villains. And I think that that's really important because sometimes we get this us versus them mentality and just not even just about sexual abuse, but about anything in the world. And it becomes like, if you disagree with my viewpoint, if you don't understand exactly where I'm coming from, then you are a bad person. And it's very helpful to kind of think of it like some people are ignorant to the truth. Some people cannot comprehend what it is that's happening. They're not on the same page, but it's not coming from a place of malice or a place of like villainry, but just it's an ignorance. And I like what you said about that, that people are not necessarily villains. They just don't know what they don't know. And that's hard to just kind of let go of the need for everybody to understand, to let go of the need to have everyone know exactly where you're coming from. But I think that that's something that we kind of do have to make peace with, or we just drive ourselves crazy. Yeah, it's something I've really had to reckon with in myself for a long time over the past 18 months since this has been happening. I just felt like, well, if everybody had the information, like, I still have this fantasy that we'll all just sit down together in a big room and just order a bunch of catering and everybody share what they know. And then we'll all get on the same page and everybody will finally understand each other and it'll be wonderful. And yet the more I've learned is that like, it's just not like that, that some people learn more information and still are just somehow able to just either dismiss it or, yeah, I've just had to accept the fact that more information does not necessarily change people's minds. And I don't, you know, I don't really understand what that is, but yeah, because for me, seeing some new information about just changed my whole viewpoint on it. I suddenly saw it for what it was, uh, which was just like really dangerous. And other people, they just just don't see it that way. And uh, yeah, much of my frustration and time over the past year has been spent like working through that, just accepting the fact that not everybody is going to get to the same place that I am in seeing the situation the same way. It's hard. It really is. It's a struggle. And there are so many struggles involved with doing the kind of thing that you did where you blow the whistle in a church, you lose your church family, you lose people who were super, super close to you, some great friends, your spiritual leadership, and suddenly everything is brought into question. And I know that that's really difficult for a lot of abuse survivors because it's like this person who is teaching you God's word and that God is good and wonderful and wants the best for you is also the person who's abusing you or who's abusing other people. And it's so hard to reconcile that, that not only are you calling those friendships into question, it's like everything is on shaky ground, even your faith, because what was real and what was not real out of everything that you've experienced with this person that you now know to be a child sexual abuser. Yeah, and I could I could see that because honestly, when we left our old church and had to kind of start over again, you know, while our family was reeling with trying to bond with a new child and the whole thing, like I got to the point where I could not, 
I couldn't read the Bible for several months. I just couldn't. I, I didn't know what was true anymore and what wasn't true. And these people I really had respected for a long time had taken me through so much of the scriptures. And that, and then I'm like, but the whole thing, the whole time they were covering this big thing up. And, you know, like I just, it just was a big mess in my head. And I would try to pray and I just felt like this wall there of like, I, no, uh, I can't do it. And so I personally, I don't think my faith was ever, uh, I don't know. I, I had to separate out what were like doctrines that people taught me that I thought I believed, but I, you know, and then I ended up just going back to like what I call my first love of when I was in high school, when I became a believer, like I know Jesus, he loves me. I love him. And I don't know anything more than that right now. <laughs> like, and I just had to start over at that very basic foundation because there was so much wrapped up in it. The, the spiritual abuse that our whole church endured and then me specifically endured, um, it really did, it did a number on, on things. And in the end though, again, I can say like, okay, but that's, I'm grateful. Like I, I'm much less certain of many things right now than I, than I would have said two years ago, but uh, it's actually very freeing in a way to kind of rediscover my faith, rediscover Jesus. For me, the way I started reading the scriptures again was I started uh, this past January, um, about a year ago, of just reading through the Gospels. I'm like, okay, I don't understand how Paul's letters fit into all of this. I don't understand how the Old Testament fits into all of this, but I can read about Jesus <laughs> and not get too upset. <laughs> So that's what I did for the whole last year. Um, and it's actually been really fantastic and amazing. And I know I need to expand beyond that, but that's been, that's been really great for me. I'm really glad you said that because I feel like it's, it's really good advice, whether you meant for it to be <laughs> advice or not. And I found myself in that situation as well. Just like when everything is called into question and there's so much confusion, I, I feel like it's so peaceful and calming to just go back to the basics. And like for you, that was Jesus. And for me, I would say the same thing. Um, the basics is Jesus. Like I may question everything else. And that's kind of the one constant for me, where even if I see that people have been lying and cheating and stealing and killing, uh, even within the church, the one thing that I come back to is my faith in Jesus. So I think that that's pretty cool. Like I know for some survivors of sexual abuse within the church, especially if you were abused by a member of the clergy, that it's very, very difficult for you to go to church, to sing hymns, to even read scripture. And, and I can understand that to an extent. I don't have a ton of experience with that, but I know that in my life, there are scriptures that will evoke anxiety attacks in me. And it's because I was trying desperately to comfort myself in the middle of anxiety attacks and panic with scripture. And I was trying to make that make everything better. And what I ended up doing was conditioning my brain to panic even more when I heard those scriptures. And so I do understand there are some scriptures that I will hear that should comfort me and will instead immediately cause my body to go into like fight or flight mode. So if you're one of those people, you're like, I can't touch the Bible. I can't even think about uh, Jesus. Then you know what? That's where you are. And I definitely don't mean for this to be something uh, to tell you this is what you should do. But I will agree with Nicole and say that in my personal experience, for me, um, just getting back to that basic foundation, like, okay, all this stuff is chaos and all this stuff is crazy. What is my one constant? And it's Jesus and, and you find him in the gospel. So I think it's great that you've had that. Yeah, it just worked. It's what worked for me. And I, I mean, there was honestly a little bit of defiance to it because I got to the point after several months of just being in this survival mode with family and, um, you know, after several months of like, okay, I have to somehow figure out how to open a Bible again and not just fall apart. And then I realized, you're like, you know what, these spiritual, these abusive spiritual leaders, like I was a Christian before them and I'm not going to let their sinfulness make me somehow not believe this. Like I believed this before and I know I believe it now. And 
So it was almost a bit of like a defiant attitude, honestly, that was like, so you know what? I'm going to read the Gospels. <laughs> they can't do anything. About it. I don't know. So yeah, I had faith before and I was going to still have faith and I was determined to somehow figure that out. And and like I said before, our our new church community has been, you know, although there's been a lot of, obviously we have like trust issues, <laughs> but they have been really great at just kind of walking with us and um, being very just kind of quiet and still while we have processed all of this. And that has been really helpful. Awesome. Well, okay. So I want to jump backwards one more time because I want to clarify something. I just want to ask a couple of questions about the church that you were a part of uh, before you made the discovery that this pastor had a past. I'm curious as to how he was hired at the church. Did everybody who hired him know about his past? Was this something that was common knowledge? Was it something that he hid from them? I'm just kind of curious about that element of the story. Okay, so our church was run very informally is maybe the word for it. Like, So we had one main pastor, and many. this was many years ago, and an older gentleman started coming to our church with his wife and everybody really liked him. Like, oh, he used to be a pastor somewhere. Isn't that nice? So occasionally he would preach when our main pastor was out of town and kind of it just very slowly, gradually morphed into he came on as a part-time paid pastor, which gradually morphed into him becoming a full-time pastor. And the story is that he did tell our main full-time pastor at that time that he had something in his past that prevented him from being able to pass a background check. But the other pastor was the only one who knew that. It was not shared with the whole board. It was definitely not shared with the church when we raised our hands to vote him in. And yeah, so that, and that is the the former pastor that people started asking questions of that wanted to know like what what was happening what did you know when did you know it and he is very sorrowful for his actions and has is very full of regret for the way he handled that whole situation so the board of the church actually knew that he had this child abuse in his past and this was something that was like common knowledge to them Yes. And, you know, over the years, the other, we ended up having an elder board um, of five. And our, the way our church was run, like the, it was elder slash pastor, and some of them were paid and some are not. And that was one of my questions that kind of got me on the bad side was like, well, did you guys all know this? And, and yet I could ask that of myself. I also knew there was something there, you know, and I didn't um, pursue it more. So, and that, yeah, they did all know it. The deacons had never been told, but the elders did know about his past. Yeah, and just didn't think it was didn't think it was worthy of anybody else's knowledge. And that's where a lot of the spiritual abuse came in was because they really, I mean, as far as I know, to this day, don't think it was ever really anybody else's business. And that absolutely drives me insane. Like it drives me so insane that the church board didn't think it was important to let a church full of parents of children know that the man they had hired to be their pastor and who was a leader at their preschool had child molestation in his past. Like it just baffles my mind that the church gets this wrong over and over and over again. The church doesn't see anything wrong here. And if you look at the world, because uh, you mentioned that he had lost his license, he couldn't be around children in, in the public schools any longer. And it's like the world knows that this is how it's supposed to be done. That if somebody violates a child, they lose the privilege of working with children ever again, because that's the way that it works. And it's like the world understands this. And the church just doesn't. And it drives me nuts. I just don't understand it. Yeah, I don't really know what is at the root of that. Um, but yes, when we have shared our story with various people, um, many times the people who are not in the church kind of see it very black and white and clear, clearly like, well, yeah, why would you ever hire him in the first place? And 
And yet inside the church, it seems just feels a lot murkier. <laughs> so yeah, that was a, that was part of our confusion. I think just one of the things that is fascinating to me is that this pastor has continued to at least occasionally preach in other churches in our area. And I mean, just a quick Google search and you find it online. <laughs> um, and so we have done some work. Um, my friend and I have done some work to try to then inform pastors of those churches. And it's just been really interesting to see their responses and or lack of responses and how it's, yeah, like he's just a very charming person and people just can't imagine that he really did it, even though the court records and he himself say that he really did it. <laughs> uh, they just kind of can't imagine that it's really a big deal. It's so crazy. And something else that's crazy to me is how hard you have to work in order to alert people about this man and his past. When there are so many pastors who are friends of his and pastors who just know him, uh, know the story, they know what this man has done, and there's zero effort from any of them to protect children in congregations. It's basically, you know, you are the one that's carrying that burden. And that's something I don't understand either. Like, why is it that we are the ones as survivors or as whistleblowers who feel this deep sense of urgency to protect kids? And then you have church leaderships and denominational leadership, and it just seems like they are completely unconcerned with it. And I, I don't understand that. You know, because this is in the Southern Baptist uh, Convention, and as a national convention, there have been some really great like words spoken and you know speeches made on this topic. Um, so I have actually reached out for help a little bit to both the state and national um, SBC organizations to try to keep him from just going from church to church. And preaching. And it's been an interesting process because it's really, it's very, very time consuming <laughs> because there's no like central person that can just pick up the phone and say, hey, this guy can no longer preach in our churches. Instead, they kind of applaud me for my efforts and, and give me one more person's name that I'm supposed to call and one more conversation that I need to have. And it, it's been an interesting, you know, at one point I, I said to one of the, the state director, like, like, I'm not in the SBC anymore. Why am I working so hard <laughs> to try to keep people informed about him? There, there's no mechanism for you to be able to do that. And yeah, so it's, I'll be interested to see how the SBC continues with this, if they're somehow able to solve the issues that allow this to just kind of keep happening. Just this, honestly, this issue probably would not even be on my radar, even the tiniest little bit. If, if we hadn't had such a close encounter with all of it. And, but it's like, yeah, now that I know this, I can't unknow this. I can't unsee what is happening. And yeah, I don't know. I feel like in some ways, I just am amazed the the level of like hurt and dare I say trauma that I had to walk through just to be able to get to the point that I can speak to you without like physically shaking and and I didn't experience any sexual abuse during any of this. Like I experienced some, you know, spiritual abuse and it was a really traumatic walking our children through all of it. But it, you know, I personally was not physically hurt in any way. And I just am amazed that survivors are even able to like, to do this, to do this work. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by it because I know how much it, how hard it was just for me and in my you know, you're not supposed to compare trauma, but in my mild situation. So uh, yeah, I'm hopeful that maybe that's one way that I can help. I don't know exactly what I'm doing here, but I'm at least trying to help keep this one man <laughs> uh, from, from kind of setting up shop somewhere else. And, and one of, you know, another thing that we face that I know survivors face too, is we have experienced some issues with threats. We had some character assassination happen where there were these rumors going around about us that weren't at all true. And um, I mean, just the whole script played out for us, just like when I read survivor stories, it's um, so much of it rings true for the way that we experienced our situation. Yeah, it seems like a lot of people just run into the same issues over and over again. 
and it can get ugly. You know, you, you try to speak the truth and you're doing it from a place of wanting to protect children uh, because that's at the root of what we're doing. Like that is what it is. And people view it as something else. They view it as you're attacking, you're trying to tear people down, you're trying to destroy when actually it's abusers who destroy and that's what we're trying to stop. And that it's tough to deal with. Yeah. And I, you know, I always am trying to, you know, understand why people act the way they do. And a lot of times I think, you know, what? I don't even know, like, I don't know what they've been going through in their own lives that make this just impossible for them to process. I don't know what is in their own history that just makes this why they don't want to know more detail, why they don't want more information, but they just don't. And <laughs> I just have to accept that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we had to remove ourselves from that situation. I, yeah. And I think, um, one of the hard things about this is that our my motivation in all of this is is simply to protect, and yet other people see it as as attacks, and that's a really hard. Yeah, I never had enemies in my life before this situation, and how crazy is that? That um, protecting children made me have people who really very strongly dislike me. It's a crazy situation. It is crazy. Like crazy is the only word that I can think of. Um, Nicole, I just want to thank you so much for being on the podcast with me today. And I want to thank you for what you're doing. Like just listening to your story, just listening to you talk about the effort that you're putting into trying to stop this man from hurting any more kids. It's, it's crazy because you're not the person who should be doing it. You aren't, but no one else is doing it. So you've kind of picked up that mantle and I think it's just awesome. And I appreciate all the work you're doing and I appreciate so much you coming on the podcast today. Thank you very much. I appreciate um, the invitation and um, I love listening. So thank you for your podcast. Thank you so much, Nicole, for joining us today on Survivor Sanctuary. And hey, if you want to connect with Nicole and continue this conversation, you can do that on the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook page. Just search Survivor Sanctuary on Facebook and you'll have to request to join and I will add you ASAP. Like as soon as I get those requests, I add new members as long as I can verify that you're not an axe murderer or anything like that. And uh, then you can continue the conversation there with Nicole Saylor. And again, a huge thank you to Nicole for the interview for putting up with all the technical difficulties she is quite a trooper and wow quite a story as well well i am out of here i will catch you back here on another episode of survivor sanctuary i'll see you then thanks for listening to survivor sanctuary with me kelly downing if you found value in today's podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Not only will it put a big smile on my face, more importantly, your reviews will help make it easier for other survivors and survivor advocates to find this podcast. Also, make sure you subscribe to Survivor Sanctuary wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also join the conversation in our Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. And for exclusive content, be sure to visit SurvivorSanctuary.com. Join me next time for another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. See you then.